Wonderful. Well, our text came from the book of Micah. And I'll read it again so that we are kind of like on the same page. Micah, the sixth chapter, in the sixth through the eighth verse, read as follows. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I remember as a child growing up how very afraid I was about making God mad. I grew up believing that if I called the Lord's name in vain, that that was a direct passage to hell. My friends all believed that if we were walking past a church building, we had better be on our best behavior or else. We would stop yelling, horsing around, or even laughing out loud, LOL, as we went by. I even remembered how scared I was to even let the Bible touch the ground and how there was no way we would, we would go into a church without being on our best behavior. I remember these things. I also remember watching people put out their cigarettes and throw away their bottles of liquor and stop cursing as they walk past a church building. But we live in a very different world today. I can recall thinking how mad God would be if I talked back to my parents or disobeyed them because from Sunday school we were taught Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. I remember in Sunday school them drilling that in my ears, which, if you listen to the words very carefully, sounds like dishonoring your parents equals a very short life which to me when I was growing up was very scary. But we live in a very different world today. Today, people throw and leave their garbage on church property. We've experienced that. Graffiti burn or bomb church buildings. Today, people shoot up people in the middle of Bible study. Today, people come to services chronically late without any reverence for holiness as they walk into the sanctuary. Today, people hold ministers and God's people in low regard or with very little respect. Today, only like they, they, they only like the church and its people when it can help them. Today, supporting the church financially is only occurs when it's convenient. Today, people come to church only if their children or if they are being recognized. Today, people come to church if something bad happened to them. Uh, people don't think prayer or Bible study is important to attend. People complain today that churches are either too early, too late, too long, or while overtime for a ball game is okay. People come to church today, church is boring. The music is too loud. The list goes on and on. 
Now, if any of that made you feel a little uncomfortable, then maybe it applies to you. Maybe. Maybe. But my purpose is not to cast shame or guilt upon you. Absolutely not. My purpose is to help you to see that today we have a very different approach to God and how we treat God today that is different from how we used to treat and how we used to see God back in the day. Part of it, I think, has a lot to do with how we understand God. That's the reason why I mention all of that. Maybe, maybe today the church and the people of God understand something different about God than the way they understood God back then. How do we understand God? And what do we really want from him? Is God only there for our convenience? And whenever he's not responding to our needs, then, then does it mean that God now becomes irrelevant? What is it that we really want from God? Only you know. But I think the bigger question that we need to ask, as well as to answer, is what does the Lord require or want from us? And as I attempt to respond to that inquiry, I want to speak from the subject today, the Lord's delight. The Lord's delight. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I come to you again today as a vessel of your, of your word. I arise today, Lord, through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of all creation, and that is you. So today, Lord, I ask that Christ be with me that Christ be before me, that Christ be behind me, that Christ be in me, that Christ be beneath me, that Christ be above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every person who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in the eye of everyone who sees me. And today in this worship experience, Christ in the heart of everyone who hears me. Bless now this moment, I pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. The Lord's delight. It's important to understand some of the basics of the book of Micah and why it was written. It's an unusual text, and I think it's the first time that I've ever preached from the book of Micah since I've been preaching. The prophecy of Micah was written at a time when God wanted the people of Israel to face up to the fact that their persistent sins were ripe for his judgment. In other words, the people were getting away with so much junk and so much stuff that God was now literally fed up. God was fed up with the way that people were approaching him and the way that people saw the ministry that he was offering to them. And so Micah saw these things and God put into the heart of Micah the reason why he's writing this book. 
Now, 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 at the time of the writing, Micah had seen many, and this is one of the things that Micah was really troubled by, he had seen many rich people obtain permanent ownership of poor people's land. And this was going against God's established rules. Now, going back into the Old Testament for a little while, if you remember when the people came out of Egypt, when God delivered the people out of Egypt, there was now 12 tribes of Israel. And for each of the tribes of Israel, God gave them all a certain portion of land. The only people that did not get any land were the Levites. And these Levites, they were the ones who were going to be the priests for God's people. So the priests, really, the way that they were supposed to live was basically all the people who God had given land to, they would be the ones that supported the priests as the priests made atonement and worship for them. Not too much different than how it is in the church today. Every one of you have things that God has blessed you with, has given you in some way, shape, or form. And to the extent that God lays on your heart to bring it into the storehouse so that the people collectively can benefit was no different than in Micah's day. This is a community, and that's how communities work. But the problem was that some people back in Micah's day saw an opportunity to take land from people that they had no business taking land from. By some means, the rich people in Micah's day were forcing people off of their land. And how they would do this is whenever the people got into severe debt and could not pay, they would force them to give up their lands in order to pay the debt. This was not the way God designed it. Now, to make matters worse, when the people complained that the rich were doing this, they would then go to the judges, and what the judges would do is that they would then hear the cases, but because the rich was able to line their pockets, the judges, the judges would often rule in the favor of the rich. So Micah saw all of this, and it literally made Micah mad. Micah saw this and declared that it was wrong. And I'm sure all of you here can agree that that was wrong. But that wasn't all that Micah saw. Micah saw how people were cheating in business. Now, back in those days, they would actually trade. And how they would make money, a lot of people, is they would have these scales. And so when you brought something that you were selling, they would put a weight, they would rig the scale so that what you were giving them and showing them how much you're bringing weighed, they would tip the scale that it was lighter than it really was. So they ended up giving you less money for what you were selling. But when they were selling something, whatever they were bringing, they tipped the scales and they made it heavier which means that they were now making more money and doing this repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly was how the rich kept getting richer and richer. Now, now if you want to make it parallel to our day, you need not look further than credit cards, interest rates. You buy something and for some reason, if, if, your, if your credit score is high enough for the same thing, you pay 1% interest. But if your credit score is low enough, meaning that you're probably not as rich or you're a little poor or you're struggling, all of a sudden your, your interest rate is 29.9%. Do you see what I'm saying? The scales were different. The item's the same, 
but the scales were different depending on who's coming to buy. Micah saw this, and Micah thought there was something wrong with that. So both the rich, the judges, and those in government were connected by greed for money and for property. Now, people were losing their homes back in those days to loan sharks and predatory lenders who were connected to the banks and to the government. People had these huge student loans because they wanted to go to, you know, Hebrew University in the desert. And they had these huge student loans, and it was literally impossible to pay it back because the government made it easy for banks to capitalize on your investment in your own education. People worked all their lives, paid into their retirement savings. Now they find that in their later years, they have to now use that retirement savings if they didn't lose it to the stock market casino just to try to keep their homes. Are you tracking with me? This is what Micah was seeing back in the day, which is not a lot different than what we're seeing today. And, and even if you think about refinancing your, 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 your home back in Bethlehem, all they do is they kind of split your mortgage loan into two parts, defer one payment that you will pay 30 years from now, the balance 30 years from now, which means after you satisfy the 30 years for the first half of the, the loan, the balance starts anew to pay off the latter part. Now you'll find yourself, you're 75 years old, looking towards the golden years of your life with a 30-year mortgage. I'm saying to you that no matter how you look at it, you're going to end up losing your house, your land, anyway. Don't think even about going to the judges on Wall Street. Because the big banks already have their lobbyists and lawyers who will show you that everything that they did was legal. But despite all of these things, I keep reminding myself, because what I'm telling you is not something that doesn't hit home to me in some way, if you can relate. But I have to remind myself every now and then, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who? shall ascend into the hill of the Lord. Who shall stand in his holy place? He hath clean hands and a pure heart. Who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully? He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. I am just reciting to you a psalm that lets you know that no matter how you look at it, God is still God. He's still on the throne and he's still the one that is in control. So no matter how dark it may seem, no matter how difficult things may get, understand that it's only for a little while for the rain will fall on the unjust in the same way that it falls on the just. Now, lest you think that that's all Micah was upset about, because now I hope I'm painting for you a picture of why Micah was not so happy. But Micah was still upset, because what? Micah also now was denouncing what he called the peace and prosperity prophets. Micah saw that these prophets had become, these, these preachers had become fascinated with money, that they were prepared to give favorable prophecies to those who were rich. So they'll tell only those who they want to keep coming to their churches the good things they want to hear just so that they kept on coming back. These so-called prophets would tell people things like, you know what, you, you know, God bless those who bless 
themselves. And oh, by the way, God will bless those who bless you and curse those who will curse you. So that anyone back in the day who stands blindly with Israel is automatically considered an anti-Semite while at the same time justify the killing of innocent Palestinians. Are you hearing me, church? What I'm telling you is God is not mocked. So I'm telling people, listen, some of these folks, you watch them on television, and they'll say, you know, God, th th these folks are always ready for photo ops in president's oval offices. I'm not talking about anybody in particular. But I'm just saying, they're ready for these photo ops. And they make it seem like they're the only ones that know the truth. Furthermore, if you send them $100, they will send you all kind of CDs and books, everything else but the Bible that will tell you how to live a prosperous life and how you'll be rewarded in one week with a huge financial blessing. Micah was seeing these things in his day. So to those prophets of today, I say, be very, very careful. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that he shall reap. And to you here in this church, I even say, think very carefully, because what is God really asking you for, do you think that God is interested in giving you a 1,000-fold blessing for your $100 seed? Is that the God we serve? Is that what you really think God is requiring of you? I don't know. I just ask the questions. After all that you've seen and heard and learned about God, what is God really asking of you? Now, Eugene Peterson, Eugene Peterson, in the message translation of the Bible, takes this Micah verse, and this is how he translated it, and I found it very interesting. Here's what he says. He says, how can I stand up before God and show proper respect to the high God? Should I bring an armload of offerings topped off with yearling calves? Would God be impressed with a thousand and thousands of rams with buckets and barrels of olive oil? Would he be moved if I sacrificed my firstborn child, my precious baby, to cancel my sin? But he's already made it clear. He's already made it plain how to live and what to do. What God is looking for in men and women is quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourselves too seriously. Take God seriously. I love the way Dr. Peterson puts it, especially when he says, but he's already made it plain how to live. You see, God is not interested in how much money you make or how much money you don't make. God is not interested in what kind of car you drive or what kind of car you don't drive or even if you do drive. God is not interested in how big your checking account is or your savings account. God is not concerned with how much you give or don't give to the church. God is not concerned about where you work or even if you don't work. He's not concerned about your level of education, how many times you've been incarcerated, who you're married to, who you're not married to, who your pastor is, what mega church you go to, God does not care. What he cares about is something deeper than what you think it is. As a little boy, I grew up worried, terrified, whether or not I was loud 
when walking past the church. Terrified about getting God mad because I didn't have enough money to put in the collection plate. Feeling guilty that I did not say my prayers the right way. Scared that God was mad at me because I may have entertained some evil thought. All of these things paint the picture that God is a vengeful, critical God lurking in the shadows, just waiting for you to mess up so that he could pounce on you and send you to eternal hell. This is classic fear-mongering. And while some of you may not be willing to admit it, you harbor thoughts that God is even right now in this church mad at you for some reason. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, God is not mad at you for anything at all. Because if God is mad at you, he's mad at me too. Because all of us have fallen short of his glory. All of us have sinned. All of us, all of us will mess up before the service is over. And if God is that petty, if God is mad at you for the stuff that sometimes, the mistakes that you have made, then brothers and sisters, I am telling you that I don't want to serve that kind of God. Some of you are holding on to these things in your heart because of the lies you may have told. God is mad at me. God is mad at me for some things that you may have stolen, the thoughts you have, the mistakes you've made, the unforgiveness that you hold in your heart, the envy and jealousy that you feel in your spirits, the secrets that you have not shared, the crime that you committed but were not caught, the guilt and the shame for what someone did to you that nobody knows about. All of these things cause us to self-condemn. But the Lord says, now there is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. That sounds like the God I like. That sounds like the God I want. The one who does not hold my faults against me. The one who made it possible for me to be able to come to him and to say, Lord, I messed up. Will you forgive me one more time? And he says, yes. And then I'm back again tomorrow. Will you forgive me one more time? And he says, yes, that's the God I like. But keep in mind that it's not a license to keep sinning. It's simply saying that I recognize, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? So then knowing and hearing all this, I come back to the question from the very beginning. What does the Lord require of you? Micah says, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams? Does the Lord take delight in 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Does the Lord take delight in you presenting your firstborn for your rebellious acts? Does the Lord take delight in the fruit of your body for the sin of your soul? Does the Lord take delight in receiving your tithes and your offerings? Does the Lord take delight in your prayers and your penitence? Does he take delight in your piety and your observances? Does he take delight in your baptism and your communions? Does he take delight in your quarterly conferences and your annual conferences? Does he take delight in your fish dinners and your galas? Does the Lord take delight in any of these things? What does the Lord require of me? That's the question before us today. Does the Lord take delight in singing? Does he take delight in all these things that we're doing for God? When sometimes our hearts are very far from him. What does the Lord require of me? I want to know. But Micah tells us 
that he has already made it plain. He has already said God is looking for all of us to do what? To first, what he says is to do justice. What does that mean? Do justice. Most of us today are like the Jewish people back then. We tend to think that we can make up for our sins by offering bigger sacrifices, bringing more money into the sanctuary, doing more things for God. We, we, we are so stuck in this, let me do more for God. You think God needs your stuff? You think God wants anything that you can go and scurry around to bring to him? Church, I'm telling you the truth. Every church, every church needs money. Every church needs to be able to do the things we want to do. Every church wants to bless everyone. But if you think that God and Jesus died on the cross just so that you could bring your $10 into the offering plate, you are sadly mistaken. You miss God. Listen, your gift to God in this house ain't for God. So understand what I'm telling you. God says, do justice. Even if the Israelites, you see, Micah said in the text, they asked the question, should I bring my firstborn as a sacrifice? If you read the text carefully, if you look carefully in the text, the reason why that question was asked was because the people of that time, they were trying to serve God in the same way that they served pagan gods. That's what those pagan gods required. Bring your child, your firstborn, and sacrifice him at altar. That's not the God we serve. So be very careful, church, when you're trying to please God the way the world does. God does not require you to do things the way other people do it. He requires something else. God is interested in your heart. The condition of your heart. We have to understand that God, ex God expects us to recognize our need for repentance and, 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 and our proclivity for injustice is so strong that God wants you to denounce when you feel like hurting your neighbor to actually say, no, I refuse to do that. Can you have that, find that kind of strength when everything inside of you wants to get back at the person and wants to have revenge, when everything inside of you is telling you, mm, they made me so mad, I'm going to show them. If you can denounce that, then you have a good place for God to find your heart. Because everything inside of you that wants to get back at someone else is a ticket to Satan's kingdom. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, give people enough respect to get their due. God says, vengeance is mine. Can you be satisfied with God getting back at them than you? I don't know. But the second thing that God says is to what? Is to love mercy. To love mercy. Now, Here's where I want to sit for just a few minutes before we wrap up. Mercy is described as the characteristic of God's love that causes him to help the miserable. Hear what I said. When people are miserable and they have nowhere to turn, even if the stuff that they did was their own fault, God exercises mercy. And, and, and it's different from grace. 
Because what grace does is that God allows himself to forgive the guilty. So when you're guilty and you deserve everything that is coming to you, God grants you grace. But when you are miserable and you're messed up and things have all fallen apart, God grants you his mercy. Now the reason why Micah would say to the people, love mercy. Who in here would not love mercy? Everyone would love mercy. Mercy is a nice thing. I love to love people. I love to see mercy. But the problem in Micah's day was for those who you see in your life, that every part of them you know don't even care about God, don't even love God, they're not even thinking about God, they don't deserve any mercy from God. When your heart becomes like that, that's why God now says you need to love mercy. You see, I want to paint the picture for your church. Someone hurts you in a very bad way. Every part of you wants to do what? Get revenge. But while you want to get revenge, you look around and God is blessing them anyway. Hear me clearly. Listen, first of all, Micah says, do justice. In other words, don't cheat people, love people as you would want them to love yourself. That's the problem that Micah was trying to solve. But the second thing Micah is saying is, love mercy. So you're like, that's not hard. And I'm telling you that you will find that you do not love mercy when you see the mercy of God falling and the blessing of God falling on someone you don't think deserve it. All of a sudden, your love for mercy goes out the window. Why would God bless that doggone demon. That person is a demon in my life. Why would God bless? And I'm telling you, we, 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 we laugh about it, but I'm telling you, it is, a, it is an indication of the condition of our hearts. If you can't be happy for someone else's blessings, even if you think they don't deserve it, you are as far away from God as you could possibly be. Hear what I'm talking to you about, church. I'm telling you, it's not easy to love mercy when it's being given to somebody else. The third and final thing that Micah says is to what? Walk humbly with your God. I'm breaking down the text because I want you to have understanding of what's going on. These people were, they were continually perpetuating their sin. And Micah said, judgment is coming. This is what you need to do. Do justice, love mercy, and finally, walk humbly with God. It sounds like, if I were to say, how many of you here humble yourself before God? Don't raise your hands, because most of you might. And I don't want to make liars in the church. <laughs> to walk humbly with God means that you are satisfied with God's decisions for your life. So when God says, no, are you still satisfied? Listen, my daughter, my son, my children, when I tell them no, they are not satisfied with no. So if they are not satisfied with no, what makes you think you are when God says no? Because the thing you want, you want it so bad. Why is God punishing me? Lord, whatever happened to mercy? 
Whatever happened to mercy when it's for me? And God shuts up the windows of heaven and you don't get the things that you're asking for. Can you still serve him? Can you still exercise the kind of humility that says, not my will, but thy will be done? What is your garden of Gethsemane? The thing that's coming at you that you are trying very hard to prevent that God says you must go through if you're going to actually receive the blessing. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff was used for correction. Can you be corrected by God and still say, Lord is my shepherd? To walk humbly with your God means that you are taking on a posture that says, things are not going my way, but I'm still holding on to his unchanging hands. I want to still be in the presence of a God even if he's not answering my prayers. That's what it means. And I'm telling you the way that I've presented it is that all of these three things, justice, mercy, and humility, are difficult things. And, the, and Micah would not have to be telling the people to do these things if they were doing it already. You do not need to be told to do something that you're already doing. Church, I'm preaching to your spirits. I want you to see that we have taken God for granted in so many ways, and we think that what we're doing is enough, and that the Lord takes delight in these things. Brothers and sisters, what does the Lord really delight in? The Bible, that's a question I asked from the beginning. The title of the sermon is The, the Lord's Delight. I want to know what the Lord requires of me. And the thing that I want that to give to the Lord is I want to give him something that brings him delight. The quintet sang it. What did they say? You deserve it. All of the glory, all of the honor, all of the hallelujahs belong to you. You deserve it. What is it that would make God smile? I want to know. Is there something I can do that will make the creator of the universe look upon me and smile? Well, Micah says, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. Look at what it says in verse 8. Look carefully. Don't miss it, church. I don't want you to miss this. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. Stop right there. All the other stuff is good. But he, he says, Micah says, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. God requires the good. Ah. What does that mean, Pastor? Only God is good. Your good and my good is a fallen good at best. So what does the Lord delight in? The Lord delights in the good. So I say, what is the good? And since God alone is good, and he wants all of us to follow in his acts and in accordance with his character, to exercise justice and mercy and humility, then the only way that we can do those things is if we are in Christ. For only Christ is good. I don't know if you heard that. The Lord's delight is Christ. 
The what delights the Lord is Christ. If you want to please God, then you are not doing the humility, you are not doing the justice, you are not doing the mercy, but you can only get credit for doing all of that in Christ. And it's only in Christ that the Lord takes delight. I don't know if you're hearing me. I don't know if you're understanding it. If you want to please God, you must conform to Christ. You must become like Christ. Until you do that, all of the stuff you're bringing, fatted calves, your tithes and your offerings, your dollar, your ten dollar, your fifty dollars, all of that, the more stuff means nothing to God unless you bring to him Christ. And when you bring Christ to the Lord, he takes delight in it. Are you understanding what I'm saying? God is a just God, and he must punish the wicked. And all of us are wicked. But the gospel message is that you don't have to worry about being a delight to the Lord as long as you are in Christ. So the question I ask, what offering should I bring when I bow down and worship God? When I walk into the church on a Sunday and I say I'm going to church to worship God, what offering should I bring? Should I bring my tithes and should I bring my... What offering should I bring? Should I, should I try to please him by bringing a year-old calf or, or my firstborn? No, that won't help. Should I, should I come to him by bringing him a new person to join the church? No, that won't help. What should I bring? I bring to the Lord the only sacrifice that is pleasing and acceptable in his sight. And that is, I bring my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. I say, Lord, Christ is in me. That's why I prayed the prayer I did before, because I want Christ in me, Christ around me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ to my left, Christ to the other left, Christ to my right. I want Christ all over me. I want Christ all around me so that when, 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 when God looks at my sacrifice, when he looks at my worship, when they sing, my hallelujah belongs to you, when they do all of that, when they dance, when they play on the instruments, when Jesse beats on the drums, when you raise your hands, when you do all of that, I want God to see Christ and Christ alone. If God sees Christ and Christ alone, then he knows that this is a place where his spirit is welcome. So when Lynette pre prays and she asks for God to fill this place, God hears Christ is calling. Yes, yes, yes. Christ is calling and God must respond to Christ. So I don't know what you're hearing, church. I really don't know. But what I'm trying to help you see is that the only thing in you that is good the only thing in you that is good is Christ in you. And if you can walk through these doors on a Sunday morning and say, Lord, I am broken. All that I have is me. I don't have all that I could give you. But the only thing I can give you is the Christ in me. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, you would have given God his delight. His delight. Give back to God what he has given to you. 
I demonstrate this as an example Sunday after Sunday when we take the offering. And I pull it up. And what do I say? Because I want you to have understanding that nothing we do in this church is by accident. I say, Lord, whatever you place in our hands, what I say, we give it back to you. Right? It's a demonstration of a culture that says, God, you died for me. Christ is in my heart, and I give him back to you. That's the point. So, my job is to edify the body of Christ. My job is not to come here and preach a message and a sermon that makes everyone jump up and down, get excited, swing from the chandeliers, and do all the things that you all want to do. That's fun. That's nice. But the thing that I want you to keep in the back of your mind is that all of what we do in this worship experience is designed for one thing and one thing only, is to allow Christ to grow stronger in you that you can't help but change the world. Conforming to Christ and transforming the world means that Christ is so embedded in your day-to-day -day life that you can't help but breathe out Christ. And when you do that, I'm telling you, demons flee. You walk into a room and you bring a light that changes a dark place. You go places where people look at you and they're like, something is different and unique about you. And how they will know is because you have found a way to cultivate Christ in your heart. To the point where you can't help but be nice to people. You can't help but do justice. And then when you see people being blessed, you can't help but be happy for them because you love mercy. And as you continue to walk, you walk humbly with God because whatever he asks is whatever you are willing to do. I am a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, O God. So what does the Lord require of you? Christ. That is the Lord's delight. Christ. Christ in you. Christ above you. Christ beside you. Christ to your right. Christ to your left. Christ in front of you. Christ behind you. Christ beneath you. Christ in the mouth of people who speak to you. Christ in the people that sees you. Christ in the people that hear you. Just Christ, 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 and brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, you do that. And it's not a hard thing to do. It's not a hard thing to do. The only thing you need to do to have everything that I just talked about, the only thing you need to do is to say, Dear Lord, I am a sinner. But you died for sinners just like me. I repent from all of my sins. The things that I told people about, the things that I didn't tell anybody. I repent of it all. I repent for all of the times when I was not being nice to people. When I was not doing justice and treating others as I would like to be treated. I, I, I repent for all the times where, you know, Sister Veronica was getting blessed and I didn't like it. Because it wasn't me. I repent for all the times when Jackie was getting blessed and I didn't like it because it wasn't me. I repent for all of that. And I repent, Lord, for all of the times where you told me to go forgive that person and I chose not to because I wanted to hold on to my unforgiveness. I repent of all of that. What I'm telling you, church, is that this is what is required of you. What does the Lord require of me? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God.